Welcome to the Renegade Nutrition Podcast, where we discuss all things wellness. I'm Eleni Welch, nutritionist. And I'm Kay Boyer, health enthusiast. Welcome back, Renegades. Welcome back, Renegades. Welcome to another week of Smart Things with Eleni. That's I'm going to rename our podcast that on um, Spotify as well. Smart Just, yes. it's, it's probably a little bit more catchy. I don't know. Yeah, I know it works. <laughs> <laughs> no, so this week we're excited to tell you some other useful things for your health. And let's see, this, this week we got a little... Blood notes in in store. Blood notes. <laughs> like the password is red rum to this one. <laughs> I've realized like Blood. talking to Kay that it's like a game of word association. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is very true. Like it is like you say a word that's associated with the word you really want to say. Yes, so like true. blood notes. I'm like, I know exactly what you mean by that because it's in context, but anybody else would never understand that. It's they, like you need a translator. That's why it makes such a good like the co-host because I'm like, I got you, girl. I got you. Blood notes. We're going to we talk t- about blood can notes. Can we title it that this week? Blood notes. <laughs> Sounds so gruesome. <laughs> Oh, it's funny. I'm, that I think funny. I'm fluent in your language now. Thank you. Thank you. If you said that, I'd be like, oh, I know what she's talking about. I know what but. episode that is. Yes. <laughs> Word association. It's like looking at your mind map. Yes. That it, it, that's so true that I get like the general subject and then we'll get you there. Like, yeah. Blood work. Yeah. Yeah. Blood work. Blood work. That's that's the word she's blood looking notes. for. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Okay. Yes. Today's topic is how to interpret your annual blood tests mm. and know if you are healthy. Yes. Give us notes on my blood. <laughs> notes <laughs> on your blood. <laughs> oh, and I just got mine in, so I'm going to learn all about it. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. good. So this good. is a general overview. It's information that you would find on a... Um, like annual blood tests, like a CBC or a comprehensive metabolic panel, but it's very, very general. So I'm not getting in depth into your CBC, which is like a complete blood. I think it's complete blood count. I actually don't know what it is. Complete blood count. Okay. That's what CBC is. Okay. Where it looks at your red blood cells and your white blood cells and the size of your blood cells and all of that. That's not what I'm getting into today. I'm getting into more general blood work that your doctor will order on an annual basis if you're going in for a physical. So the basics. Okay. And I do and you have to ask for this or the doctor will generally get it? If or? you go in for a physical, your doctor will order these okay. tests. Okay. Most of them. There are some tests on here I will suggest that you ask your doctor to order. Okay. Um, but most of these are standard issue. And it's helpful information. So I wanted to share this information. It came, it came from basically an email, Drew Perowit, love him. you know i've i've said i love him he's a, yes. a fellow podcaster yep if you don't listen to the drew pro podcast you're missing out yes. anyway i've signed up for his he's newsletters because so he sounds out all kinds of helpful things that even help me in my nutrition podcast he's a health enthusiast he's not mm-hmm. a health expert himself but he has a health podcast and he works with dr mark hyman who is top level functional medicine doctor yes top of the top yes yes anyway he sends out emails that I get. And so he sent one back at the beginning of this year that was talking about how to interpret your blood tests. And I thought it was a really helpful guide because it essentially aligned with what I already look for when I look at blood tests. But it was a really helpful thing for me to supply patients because 
it broke down how to interpret the blood tests in a really easy to understand way. Mm. So rather than me regurgitating all that information and saying, here's what I look for, which I'm not so good at making it non-scientific, he's very Mm. good at making it non-scientific. So I actually saved it as a resource for some of my patients Mm. because I interpret their blood tests. And I thought, well, because I already do this for you, you should understand what I'm doing, right? Like, so anyway, I saved it. And then I just was looking for topics the other day and I was thinking this would be really useful for our listeners, not yes. just for my wellness patients, but for our listeners too, because yeah. I'm sure many of you are going to a doctor annually or every other year or every five years or 10 years, <laughs> yes. depending on who you are. Yep, fair. No judgment here. Um, and when you do, you get blood work. So I thought I'd supply you with the knowledge to interpret your results because most likely when you're going to the doctor, what they're looking for are the standard conventional ranges, but Mm -hmm. they're not the optimal health ranges. Uh. So what I'll walk you through today is what the optimal health ranges are for those numbers that you're getting back on your blood tests so that a lot of people, they're going to the doctor, they're not feeling that well. Maybe they're Mm -hmm. low energy, they have chronic fatigue, they're not sleeping well, they're gaining weight inexplicably, they just don't have the stamina they used to have. They feel cruddy, their digestion is off, whatever it is, and they get their blood work and their doctor says, well, your blood work looks fine, right? Yeah. That's pretty, Yeah, (laughs) I've gotten that before. Yeah. Oh, you're having headaches every day? Well, your blood work looks fine. You're good. (laughs) You're good. (laughs) You're fine. You're healthy. You're not actively dying, right? So basically the ranges that become abnormal in a conventional setting are like you are very ill like ranges yeah but you can have ranges that are in the quote-unquote normal Mm. range and still not be optimal Mm. and not be feeling your best yes so i'm gonna walk you through all the numbers Man, I need my my chart of my hospital blood work yeah. here that I yeah. to compare it while you while you say this. Wow. Yeah, and then what what are the optimal numbers to help you know if you are healthy? So mm. defining what healthy looks like, actual healthy, not mm. not standard medical healthy. Yeah. Because <laughs> standard medical healthy is like, oh, you're, you're not leaking blood from every orifice. You're just surviving. <laughs> you're still alive. You're still you alive. Yeah, yep. you have a heartbeat and you're breathing. Perfect. Yeah. Yep. Um. And I'm not, that's just, that's the conventional training. That's not medical doctors themselves. I'm just teasing. But <laughs> but that is kind of conventional training. It's basically the absence of disease, right? That's what health means is you're not actively dying from some disease. It doesn't actually mean you're thriving. Mm-hmm. So these numbers that I'm giving you today are the numbers you should have really to truly be healthy, thriving, feeling your best. Mm-hmm. And this is just a few of the numbers. So If you're not feeling well and then you listen to this podcast and you think, well, actually all of my numbers that you talked about look great, there are like a thousand other things Um, you can look mm -hmm. at in blood work. Yes. Yes. Especially when you get into like a a comprehensive blood panel, then there's, yeah, there's a million things. I'm not getting that deep today. (laughs) This is what's cool about when I went to see you and as you were my um, like nutritionist, I was always like, oh, she'll just tell me, like, eat healthy, blah, 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 eat more veggies. But it was like, no, you're, like, looking at the science of the blood work, like, numbers, markers, and you can tell if your body is getting more healthy or less. And it's so cool that you're bringing, like, the scientific side into it. Mm -hmm. So I'm here for this. This is is where I get excited with the functional medicine, like, when you bring in the, the, the proof. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So again, just emphasizing the idea that so many of us are told everything looks healthy when in reality it's not. More than a third of Americans have prediabetes, 68% of Americans struggle with sleep, and 47 million of us have metabolic syndrome. And for a lot of those people, their numbers look normal, quote unquote normal, but they're not as healthy as they think they are because they think, oh, well, my numbers look fine, but they're sick, like legitimately sick. So we can stop things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes before we're diagnosed with those things by understanding our own blood work and taking control over those numbers and taking the steps that we need to take to fix those numbers ourselves. So um, earlier this year, like I shared, health enthusiast Drew Perot wrote a comprehensive article explaining the optimal ranges for various lab tests. And so that's what I'm going to share with you today because they align with what I also think and have learned are the optimal ranges for blood tests. There are a few areas where I disagree and I'll walk you through those when we come to them. So I wanted, but in general, it was a really great resource. Like I said, I was sending it to my patients, so I wanted to share it with you in the podcast. So if you want to get the most out of your annual blood labs, blood notes, blood notes, <laughs> then this is, the, this is the episode for you. So I'm going to start with fasting glucose. So most of you probably have had fasting glucose. By the way, if your doctor is ordering blood work and you have not been fasting, so if you have eaten more recently than the last 12 hours, don't get the blood work done. Yeah, don't trust Just that. wait. Yeah. Because glucose without fasting, we talked about this in our yeah. fasting insulin episode, it's worthless. It's It doesn't tell you anything unless you're tracking it like throughout every day, right? Your, your personal non-fasting glucose is so different for every person. It's meaningless. I have never understood when doctors supply a patient with their <laughs> glucose and they're non-fasting. So these blood, mm-hmm. blood labs should be taken fasting for the most accurate results. So book an appointment in the morning. That's what mm-hmm. I always do. We book our doctor's yep. appointments in the morning Smart. so that we, my husband and I, like he used to have to get an annual, we had to get annual physicals for his work to get the optimal health insurance. Um, and the very first time we booked one of those appointments, which I hadn't had a physical in probably like 10 years, yeah, we knew we should be fasting. Our doctor told us we should be fasting for the blood work, but we booked it at like 1 p.m. Oh, <laughs> you're like starving all day. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I was like, what is wrong with us? Why did we do this? So the next year we booked it at like 9 a.m. Yes. So much better. Yes. Yes. You go out to eat after that appointment. And yes. Like stuff your face. Yes, exactly. So fasting glucose is what we're going to start with. So fasting glucose is a measure of your blood glucose levels unaffected by a recent meal. So you should be about 12 hours from your last meal, ideally. So why is it important? Fasting blood glucose tells us how well our insulin and glucose pathways are functioning in the absence of food. And that's important because you want to understand what your baseline is. Mm. So again, you would have to track your levels all day to know really how food is affecting you, but you should know what those numbers are just at baseline. So having high fasting blood glucose is linked to heart disease, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and a greater risk of all-cause mortality. So it's a really important number. As we talked about in our fasting insulin episode, 
it's not the be-all end-all, but it's a good reference point and your doctor is going to order it, so you might as well know what it is. So it's always included on a metabolic lab test, but typically no preventative diet or lifestyle guidance, or at least really helpful guidance. Again, remember only 25% of medical doctors have had even one class on nutrition. Mm. So it's just not really gonna come up and the information that they're going to provide for you if they give you nutritional advice is probably pretty outdated because that's not what their job is. <laughs> they're, they're not keeping up on the nutrition. That's what nutritionists do and dietitians do. So um, basically what your doctor is going to do is they're going to look at the fasting blood glucose and say, oh, it's a little bit high, you know, just watch out. And then you're going to come back the next year and it's going to be higher, right? Because you don't actually know how to fix it because nobody told you how to fix it. And then you come back the next year, it's going to be higher. And then you're going to be diagnosed with prediabetes. And then you might be diagnosed with diabetes. And that number is going to keep creeping up unless you actually do something about it. So... If your fasting blood glucose comes back high, it's a sign that insulin resistance has been going on for quite a while. So again, that's why we like the fasting insulin test and that's included in this episode too because that can detect insulin resistance much sooner. By the time your fasting blood glucose is high, that issue has been ongoing for a while. But if you haven't been monitoring that, then now's a good time to take a look at that number because better late than never. So a standard reference range, normal is considered anything below 100 milligrams per deciliter. So that's what your tests will say. I know that's what mine has said. Anything less than 100. They consider pre-diabetes to be anything in the range of 100 to 125 milligrams per deciliter. And diabetes is anything greater than 126. Mm. But the optimal reference range is 72 to 85 milligrams per deciliter. So okay. again, that's not going to be on your blood work. That's There's not going to be like, here's the optimal range, 75, <laughs> 72 to 85. It's just going to be like, oh, yours was less than 100, so that's normal. But by the time your fasting blood glucose is in the 90s, you have insulin resistance mm. issues. So I actually really like to see my patients get to around 85, anywhere between 70 to 85 for me is, is a healthy range. So um, yeah, I, I just think once you're in the 90s, there's a problem going on and you need to slow the train and it's much harder once you already have insulin resistance to solve the problem. So look for that number to be between 72 to 85. If it's higher than that, it's okay, but you need to start taking steps to actively control your blood sugar, mm-hmm. which we're not gonna get into all of those things today. This is simply about sharing the numbers. You could listen to any of our, our mm-hmm. episodes about sugar and know how to control your blood glucose. So. <laughs> Okay, so the next test is fasting insulin. Mm. So we talked about this test in its own episode just a few weeks ago, so this should be a nice recap. This is not a commonly ordered test. So it's not, I I don't often see doctors include fasting insulin on a metabolic panel, some might. But like we talked about, fasting insulin is a measure of your insulin unaffected by a recent meal. So you're fasting, again, 12 hours, yeah, insulin is not affected. It's your baseline insulin. So insulin, as a reminder, is the hormone produced by our pancreas that's responsible for shuttling glucose out of our bloodstream and into our cells. And when we become insulin resistant, it takes more and more insulin in order to 
properly remove the glucose from our blood. So when you have a high fasting insulin, it tells you that your body has become desensitized to the insulin it's producing, and it needs to produce more to have the same effect. So that test, fasting insulin, detects insulin resistance much sooner than a fasting glucose test does because the fasting glucose is going to become elevated much later after insulin resistance has been going on for a while because the increased insulin will keep your fasting blood glucose in the healthy range for quite a while before that system starts to exhaust. So if you have a healthy blood glucose somewhere between 72 to 85 and your fasting insulin is high, then you know you're at the beginning Mm. of insulin resistance and it's not yet affecting your blood glucose levels, but it will start too soon because the system will just get overworked and exhausted. Yep. Your body does a good job of trying to stay in balance by overworking the other right. one. So that, that's, yeah. But it's not sustainable. So fasting insulin is a marker of how your body regulates your blood glucose levels and is the most upstream test for detecting insulin resistance because it can catch it before it's fully blown. So high fasting insulin means your pancreas is working extra hard to keep your blood sugar balanced. So here's the numbers to look for. If a person has anything in the range, so the optimal range is two to five. So two to five is optimal range. Anything above 10 is concerning. Anything above 15 is significantly elevated. So if a person has a fasting blood glucose of 80, which is healthy, and a fasting insulin of less than two, then their insulin sensitivity is high, that whole system's working exactly as it should, Good for you. Everything is looking good. If you have a fasting blood glucose of 80, which is healthy, and a fasting insulin of 20, then that tells us your pancreas is working extra hard, your blood glucose is still in range, still healthy, but you're approaching insulin resistance. So that's why fasting insulin is the gold standard. So the next test is hemoglobin A1C, and that will show up on your blood work as HB, like capital H, lowercase b, capital A1C. So what is that? Your hemoglobin A1C is the percentage of hemoglobin in your blood with glucose molecules attached to it. So the hemoglobin A1C is a common test. Most doctors will order that standard issue, no no questions asked because it's a marker of your blood glucose levels over time. So whereas your fasting glucose is kind of a transient measurement, Mm -hmm. hemoglobin A1C is a, here's what your blood glucose has been doing for the past three months measurement. Mm, Okay. So if your doctor is not going to order fasting insulin, at least make sure they're ordering a hemoglobin A1C because that'll give you a picture of what your body has been doing over the last few months. So um, the test is more accurate than fasting blood glucose because obviously it indicates how much glucose is in your blood on average as opposed to just at that moment in time. However, some experts think that the hemoglobin A1C test has some limitations because it doesn't account for the blood glucose variability that happens on a daily basis from stress, diet, exercise, hormonal changes, etc. So you can have things that cause your blood glucose to spike. Mm. And if it's really a short-lived thing, 
your hemoglobin A1C isn't going to pick it up. But if you have a bunch of those over the mm. course of a day, it could still be problematic. Mm. Um, it can be beneficial for detecting prediabetes and diabetes because high hemoglobin A1C is a sign that there's more glucose traveling around in your bloodstream, which is obviously, as we've talked about, a sign of insulin resistance in and of itself. But a limitation of it is that it only has a sensitivity of about 60% which means that patients with glucose intolerance could go undetected about 40% of the time. So that's yeah. fairly significant. Yes. This is why you want all of these. You want your fasting glucose, you want your fasting insulin, you want your hemoglobin A1C because then you can compare all of those numbers and make sure everything adds up. Um, it also doesn't consider the biological variability between ethnic groups. And there are some natural variabilities. So the standard reference ranges... Normal is considered anything below 5.7%. Okay. Prediabetes is considered anything between 5.7% to 6.4%. Okay. And diabetes is considered anything above 6.5%. Mm. But the optimal reference range less than 5% is ideal. So the normal is less than 5.7, but ideally you'd be less than 5. You'd be somewhere in the 4s or less. This, I'm like trying to make a mental note of all these numbers. <laughs> I'm going to have to come back and listen to it. You just have to come back that. and listen to it. Um, okay, so moving on to our LDL cholesterol. So what is that? So LDL cholesterol is what we know as the bad, quote unquote, bad mm. cholesterol. It's low density lipoprotein cholesterol. That's what LDL stands for. And it transports cholesterol and delivers it to our tissues. Now, I disagree that LDL is inherently bad. Our body produces it. It wouldn't do that if it was actually bad, right? Um, so why is that important? But we do know that a higher LDL is, in theory, associated with higher risk of heart disease. So mm, I have high. So I'm, I'm all ears on this one. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll talk about yep. that. Yep. So... Why is it important? So high LDL cholesterol is associated with increased risk of artery disease, heart attack, and stroke because LDL cholesterol is the type of cholesterol that's more likely to get lodged in our arteries and create an inflammatory immune response that can cause that plaque buildup, which can eventually lead to heart attack and stroke if it completely blocks a blood vessel. Yeah, which is huge in my family. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So high LDL is considered a risk for heart disease, but current evidence shows that it's not actually your LDL number, but the size of your LDL particles oh. that's associated with heart disease, heart attack, and stroke. And I'll talk about what tests you can ask for hmm. to look at the size of your LDL particles. There are some doctors that will order it. Oh. It's been hit or miss. I have some patients where their doctors just won't do it because they don't understand it. <laughs> And then I have some patients that their their doctors will order it. And that is way more helpful than just your LDL. So Okay, okay. That's when you're like, doctor, just order it and I'll have Eleni make sense of mm -hmm, it. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. So I'll go into what the other test is, but just as a a brief overview, what Dr. Mark Hyman has recommended is getting a cholesterol test called the nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy or NMR lipid hmm. test so that you can see the size and number of cholesterol particles to fully understand your cardiovascular risk. So I'll talk about the N NMR test in a few minutes, but that's the test that you can ask for that will allow you to actually see the breakdown 
of the LDL particles because unfortunately, many doctors see an LD, elevated LDL and then immediately prescribe you statins or other cholesterol containing or controlling medications that have a lot of side effects and can cause a lot of downstream problems. And they're concerned about the high LDL, but it may not actually be problematic for several reasons. I mean, the main one of which is that they don't know what size the particles are and what size the particles are is what matters. So I'll get more into that in just a minute when we talk about the NMR test. But if your LDL cholesterol comes back high, then that's a sign that you need to look into your other markers that can provide context around whether or not a high LDL is actually a concern for you and your health. So um, while high LDL has been associated with a greater, like a, a increased odds of heart disease by about 30%, high triglycerides are associated with an 80% higher risk of heart disease. Mm. So LDL on its own might be associated with increased risk, but... It's debatable. And actually, more recent research has shown that it's way less associated with cardiovascular risk than we first calculated it to be. So I'll get into that. Oh, interesting. So your best bet for understanding your risk of heart disease or any chronic disease is your triglyceride to HDL, HDL ratio, followed by your total cholesterol to HDL ratio. So I'll get into that. HDL is your good cholesterol. We'll talk about that in a second. But the standard reference ranges for LDL are, this is what's recommended kind of optimally by conventional medical doctors. So less than 70 milligrams per deciliter for those with heart or vascular disease. So for those who already have heart disease, they want to see that LDL below 70. And then below 100 milligrams per deciliter for those who are at high risk. However... This is where I will say I disagree with the actual numbers that Drew put forth in the optimal reference range because experts say 100 milligrams or less is ideal, but I actually think that's too low because you need LDL cholesterol to build your cells. Your cells Mm. in your body are made of LDL cholesterol. Again, there's a reason why your body produces it. If someone leads an otherwise healthy life, I'm not concerned about LDL until it is more than three times your HDL. Mm. So if you have an LDL as high as 170 and your HDL is 70 or higher, I'm not concerned about your LDL of 170. Okay. And I'm not going to tell you to keep it below 100 because I think that that's kind of ludicrous. Like I, I honestly think for some people that's too low of a level for really building healthy cells. Um, so agree to disagree. <laughs> hmm. In the Framington Heart Study, which is the longest running population-based study in the U.S., an LDL of 100 carries the same risk as an LDL of 160. And going above 160 only very slightly increases the risk. So having an LDL below 160, the general risk of heart disease is 5%. Having an LDL above 160, the general risk of heart disease is 7%. Mm. 
So that's only a 2% increase in risk. So the idea that high LDL causes heart disease is really blown out of proportion. And that's why I don't just, I, I just don't agree with their numbers saying it should be less than 100 because there's no scientific evidence that that's actually beneficial. Oh, I'm dying to look at my numbers to see. That is so, mm-hmm. such good knowledge. Hey there, Renegades. Eleni here, briefly interrupting this episode of the Renegade Nutrition Podcast. I wanted to highlight a company that Kay and I have recently discovered that we love, and that company is Bulletproof. Bulletproof sells high-quality nutritional supplements, and every product that Kay and I have tried from them personally, we have found to be excellent. It's important when you choose a supplement that it contain the bioactive forms in order for it to be effective and Bulletproof has just the right forms in just the right amounts. Right now, if you go to Bulletproof.com and use the code RENEGADE15 at checkout, you can receive 15% off your order. That's RENEGADE, R-E-N-E-G-A-D-E-15. Use that code at checkout to get 15% off and we'll earn a small commission too. Thanks for your support. All right, back to this week's episode of the Renegade Nutrition Podcast. So now we'll talk about HDL cholesterol, which will be the other half of the test that your doctor will order. So HDL cholesterol is what we know as our high, like high density lipoprotein. So LDL is low density lipoprotein. HDL is high-density lipoprotein, and that's what we call our quote-unquote good cholesterol. Um, It carries cholesterol away from the arteries and tissues to the liver to be redistributed, metabolized, or excreted. So a high HDL means your body is carrying a lot of cholesterol away from the arteries and recycling it. So that's why it can counterbalance a high LDL, and I'm not worried about the LDL as long as it doesn't exceed three times the HDL, because in that case, the HDL is mostly keeping up with the LDL. So having a high HDL cholesterol is desirable, but most experts agree that currently the standard reference ranges are still too low to actually be cardioprotective. So what we see as the current standard reference range is anything greater than 45 milligrams per deciliter is considered healthy. However, if your, let's say your HDL is on the low end of that standard reference, so let's say it's about 45 milligrams per deciliter, and your triglycerides are on the high end, but not quite out of range, say your triglycerides are like 148, like that's pretty high, but you're still in range, then you might be told that everything looks normal and healthy, but that's actually not a good ratio because your triglycerides are way too high for how low your HDL is. So you're still at a high cardiovascular risk, but your numbers are within normal ranges, and so you might be told everything's fine. So HDL cholesterol tends to go down if you are insulin resistant and have high triglycerides. So the lower that number is, the more likely it is that you have high triglycerides and insulin resistance. So that's why calculating the triglyceride to HDL ratio is important and kind of gives you a more complete picture. So according to Dr. Sarah Gottfried, who's a functional medicine doctor who I love, in order for HDL to be cardioprotective, this is her words, In order for HDL to be cardioprotective, it must be functional. 
increased intake of virgin olive oil, nuts, legumes, whole grains, and fish improves HDL functionality. So it's important to note that you can have high HDL cholesterol, but if it's not functional, it's not protective. So there are things you can do to make the HDL you do have more functional. So again, increased intake of virgin olive oil, nuts, legumes, and whole grains and fish to improve the functionality. So the standard reference range is anything greater than uh, 45 milligrams per deciliter. Optimal deciliter. Optimal reference range uh, greater than 60 milligrams per deciliter is good. Greater than 70 is much better. And greater than 90 is optimal. So 45 to 90, like that's a pretty big. Yes, I'm going to need a chart in front of me when I do this. We should put this on the show notes. Can we put like some of those Yeah, so Drew Perot, when he sent out that email, did send out a whole chart. And I'll see if I can just copy and paste that Yeah, chart. and we'll give credit to him for that. On yes, it. credit. Yep. Absolutely. Okay, so that's your HDL. So what would be optimal? I look for my patients to have something between like 70 and 100. What's optimal mm-hmm. is above 90. But once you start getting into the 70s, it's usually pretty protective. And I found that... Um, Typically, when somebody's HDL is in the 70s, their LDL is never more than like one or two times their HDL. So, okay. by the way, some other things that can improve HDL numbers, like one of the number one things that improves your HDL numbers is exercise. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Less dietary and more lifestyle. Exercise is one of the main things you can do to improve your HDL. Very interesting. And then the things that Sarah Gottfried said, to improve its functionality. So if you could make those two changes. Wow. Start exercising regularly. Wow. And then increase your consumption of the olive oil, the nuts, the fish, the legumes, all of those things. Then you'll increase your HDL and increase its functionality. Wow. Okay, so total cholesterol. That's the sum of all the cholesterol in your blood. So that's HDL plus LDL. So why is that important? Well, it doesn't really tell us much on its own. Um, Because just looking at total cholesterol is not that helpful because it could look high if your HDL is high, but then that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Mm. It doesn't tell you how much of each type of cholesterol you have or how it's behaving in your body. You can have a total cholesterol that's quote unquote normal and still be at high risk for chronic disease because it could be that your HDL cholesterol is really low and your LDL is really high. So... Basically, the total cholesterol to HDL ratio is a much better metric, and I'll get into that one next. But because total cholesterol is included on your blood work so that you understand it, I'm just going to go through it. So the standard reference ranges um, for somebody who's 20 years or younger is 75 to 169 total cholesterol. I think that's too low. Mm. 21 years old and older is 100 to 199. Because think about if you're, so what's considered normal if you're 20 or younger, something as low as 75 for your total cholesterol is considered normal, but you want your HDL to be around 90. So, Uh, and then you would have to have non-existent LDL, which Mm. you would be dead. So I think 75 is kind of nonsense. (laughs) Even 100 is nonsense. If you want that HDL to be 90, you don't want your LDL to be 10. Yeah. You're dead. So Wow. Yeah. So those ranges, that's why those ranges are really out of whack to me. Yeah. Um, 
The optimal reference range that was put forth in Drew's email is less than 180 milligrams per deciliter. But again, I would argue that that doesn't really matter based off of what I explained about LDL and cardiovascular risk. Mm -hmm. So again, what matters is your particle size and your HDL ratio, what your triglycerides look like, all of that. Okay, so the next test is total cholesterol to HDL cholesterol ratio. So this is going to be a better metric of how your your cholesterol is actually looking and behaving. So together, those numbers provide more information about your risk of heart disease than any of them on their own. So the complete metabolic panel your doctor will order does not calculate your ratio of total cholesterol to HDL cholesterol, but you can just easily calculate it yourself because it is total cholesterol divided by HDL cholesterol. Mm. That's your ratio. So the higher your ratio is, the greater your risk for diseases like obesity, type 2 diabetes, uh, fatty liver disease, heart disease, and metabolic syndrome. So you want that ratio to be low because, again, it's total cholesterol divided by HDL. So if you have a high HDL, that number will be lower, and that's good. So most healthcare providers prefer a ratio of 5.1 or less. 3.5 to 1 is considered very good. <clears throat> less than 2 to 1 is considered ideal. But again, you have to look at the total cholesterol, what percentage of that is HDL versus LDL. So that again is not a be-all, end-all number. Okay, so triglycerides. So what are triglycerides? Triglycerides are produced when excess calories are not being used. These excess calories are converted into triglycerides by your liver and stored as fat in your body. So not a great thing to have high triglycerides. They're a major indicator of the overall quality of somebody's diet. It's one of the first things I'll look at when I'm looking at somebody's blood work. Um, you may have been told that eating too much red meat and fat leads to high triglycerides. This is not true. Mm. <laughs> it's in fact completely false. If somebody has high triglycerides, <clears throat> it's a sign that they're eating a diet that's rich in refined carbs and sugar, like nine times out of 10. Mm -hmm. If we fix the sugar intake <clears throat> and actually have them increase protein and fat intake, their, their triglycerides will go down. So when we consume concentrated sources of sugar from refined flours, sugar, and fructose, like fruit juice and products made with high fructose corn syrup, our liver turns on its fat production switch and starts making triglycerides. Mm. So why does our liver turn excess sugar into fat? Because sugar <clears throat> used to only be available on occasion, usually in the form of fruit, thinking ancestrally. And if it was around, our ancestors would eat as much of it as they could, and that would be a good thing for their body to then turn into fat because probably they're getting ready to head into the winter where they're not about to have any fruit or sugar for months at a time because it's not available. So you wanted to put on layers of fat leading into the winter because you were going to lose it all during the winter mm -hmm. when food was scarce. I'm in that journey right now. I just don't know if I'll lose it. <laughs> yeah, it's the holidays. Everybody's packing on their, yeah, their hibernation fat. Yes. So now sugar is at our fingertips all the time, mm -hmm. but our mm -hmm. body still thinks 
that it needs to convert sugar into fat because it's still thinking we're going to basically be not hibernating through the winter because humans didn't hibernate, but that we're going to have reduced food sources during the winter. And so it needs to store as much fat as possible to get you through the winter so you don't starve. However, sugar is available all day, every day. day. Yep. So you're just creating extra fat. Mm. So uric acid is produced as a byproduct of breaking down sugar And high levels of uric acid tell our liver to become insulin resistant and start producing fat. So obviously this was a survival mechanism at one point, gave our ancestors energy reserves when food was scarce. Now we're experiencing kind of this evolutionary mismatch because our ultra processed diet keeps that metabolic switch on all the time. So people who have high triglycerides, usually have a higher high sensitivity C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker that we'll talk about in a minute, Um, which makes sense because most chronic diseases that present with high triglycerides, like obesity, type 2 diabetes, and metabolic syndrome, are also associated with chronic inflammation, and that HSCRP measures that chronic inflammation. The interesting thing about triglycerides is that they can change pretty quickly, So they can change within a month or two. So if you make Mm -hmm. dietary changes, you should see improvement in your blood work almost immediately. That's awesome. Yeah. So the standard reference range is anything less than 150. 150 is way too high. The optimal reference range is anything less than 100. Mm -hmm. Although some experts say less than 80 milligrams per deciliter is optimal. I look for people to have less than 80. Is there a too low? Um, hmm. Interesting question. I've never encountered that. Okay, because my husband has super low triglycerides. Yeah. He used to. He used to. And he did kind of like do the overtraining thing. So right. I wonder if that's why. Yeah. And now they're normal. But. If you're eating up your energy reserves, so if you're overtraining, for example, yeah. and you're not consuming enough carbs, mm-hmm. you do need to consume carbs. You do need to have triglycerides. You want to have triglycerides because they're an energy storage molecule. Mm-hmm. So if you're overtraining, exercising all the time, you're burning up all of your reserves and you're not replenishing them. That's not good either. Yeah. So yes, I'm sure there is a number that's too low. I actually don't know what it is. No, and I, yeah. I think it would but. probably depend on an individual person and how okay. they were feeling. So if mm-hmm. he was like exercising all the time and feeling super tired, like yeah. chronically fatigued, then I would say, okay, your triglycerides probably aren't where they need to be. But yeah. I think I'd have to look at it pretty individually based because if he was overtraining and felt awesome, yeah, maybe I'm not worried about the lower triglycerides. Yeah, because it's not affecting him. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so I don't know what the ideal low is, but okay. So now we're gonna look at your triglycerides to HDL ratio, and again, this isn't a number that will come on your blood test. It's something you'll calculate yourself. But why is it important? If your doctor can't order or won't order a fasting insulin test for you, your triglycerides to HDL ratio is going to be the next best thing. Um, So your triglycerides to HDL ratio can tell you what's going on with your insulin sensitivity. So if your ratio is low, it's a good thing. High cholesterol to, to HDL, low is better, high is bad. Same with this, triglycerides to HDL ratio, High is bad, low is better. I don't know enough to call you out either way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, it gives you insight into what's going on with your LDL cholesterol. Um, If you can't get that NMR test, which we'll 
go into, and if you can't get a fasting insulin test. <clears throat> so if your ratio of tri triglycerides to HDL cholesterol is high, there's a good chance that your LDL cholesterol is small and dense, which is the kind that's damaging to arteries. You mm. don't know for sure, but you have a good indicator if that number is high that you have a majority of the smaller, denser particles of LDL cholesterol, which if you think about it, makes sense. So if you're thinking about like the small, dense, sticky particles, they can build up and form this really thick, dense layer, mm. right? But big, fluffy particles, they're going to mm. bounce around, Maybe they'll stick to each other, but there's a lot of space. In between, yeah. It's not packed. It's not so dense. So the fluffy particles are less dangerous. Mm -hmm. So um, you can calculate this ratio yourself by dividing your HDL or your tri, sorry, by dividing your triglycerides by your HDL. So triglycerides divided by HDL gives you that ratio. Lower is always better. Experts agree that the most powerful test to predict your risk of heart disease is the ratio of your triglycerides to your HDL. One study found that people with the highest triglycerides to HDL ratio had a 600% increased risk for heart disease. Woo-wee. So remember, yeah. high is bad, low is good. All right. So the optimal reference range is less than one, but greater then 2.5 to 1 in Caucasians and greater than 1.5 to 1 in African-Americans indicates metabolic syndrome. So there are differences depending on your ethnicity. Okay, next test is high sensitivity C-reactive protein. That's HSCRP. It's a marker of chronic inflammation. Why does it matter? Because high sensitivity C-reactive protein, HSCRP, tells us about the inflammation that's ongoing in the body. It's total inflammation. It's typically elevated in the presence of things like insulin resistance, high triglycerides, metabolic dysfunction, and chronic disease. A limitation of the HSCRP is that it can also be elevated if you're fighting off an infection. So don't get your blood work done if you have recently had the cold or flu. Don't get any blood work done if you've recently had the cold or flu because this is for your metabolic panel. But if you get a complete blood count, a CBC, it will also throw a lot of things off in there. Like your white blood cell counts will be elevated because you're fighting off a disease. Um, so if you've just had a cold or flu, wait mm. for several weeks. Um, if you've been exposed to environmental toxins, HSCRP can also be elevated or if you have an autoimmune disease. So those confounding factors can make it difficult to sort out what's actually causing this, this HSCRP to be elevated. The standard reference range is anything less than 2.0 milligrams per liter. The optimal reference range is anything less than 1.0 milligrams per liter. And some experts say less than 0.5 milligrams per liter. Mm. I've had this test ordered and what I found was my, all my blood work said was that it was less than two. <clears throat> okay. It didn't tell me the actual number. Oh, your science brain is like, give me the number. Mm -hmm. Darn it. Because the standard reference range is anything less than two, but my number could have been 1.9. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that would have been bad. <laughs> yeah. So 
ideally below 0.5 if you can find out the actual number that's best, but there are some limitations. And if it's above two, then that's very serious. All right, so moving on to NMR. That's the test we talked about, the nuclear magnetic resonance something <laughs> test. 10 times fast. Yeah. Yep. So the NMR test tells you what percentage of your LDL cholesterol is actually dangerous by measuring your LDL particle sizes. So small, dense LDL cholesterol is, as we talked about, the most dangerous LDL cholesterol. It's what can pack really tightly in your arteries. Um, if your small, dense LDL is high, it's also a sign of insulin resistance. On the contrary, very low-density LDL cholesterol, which is the VLDL particles, are like fluffy beach balls, gently bouncing off your artery walls, less likely to pile up and cause damage. They're not like pelting your artery walls and causing a whole blockade. So that means that someone can have low LDL cholesterol and still be at high risk for heart disease if their LDL is mostly the small, dense type. And someone can have high LDL cholesterol and be at low risk for heart disease if their cholesterol is mostly the VLDL type. <clears throat> so obviously, as we know, <laughs> most doctors aren't looking at those numbers in traditional conventional medicine. The reason they emphasize LDL so much is because we have drugs that can lower it, right? So it's an easy fix, makes money, but it's actually... If our LDL is high, our triglycerides are low, and our HDL is high, the likelihood of a cardiovascular event is very low, and taking the like cholesterol medication to lower that LDL is not really going to improve anything for you, and in fact will bring with it a lot of side effects. So um, that person is probably in good cardiometabolic health, and they're taking a medication that causes side effects. No good reason. So not saying don't listen to your doctor, simply have the conversation with your doctor mm. and see what else you can do. Yep. Most doctors are open to that conversation. I know very few who just won't even have that conversation. I would say probably 95% of my patients when I've asked them to talk with their doctors and say, hey, I want to try lifestyle improvements first. Their doctors are on board with that and typically give them a time frame. So we'll say, okay, you can try that for three months, then we're going to check your blood work again, or you can try it for six months, depending on how serious things looked. Yeah. So I've, I have yet to really come across a doctor that just won't budge on that. They just understand that that's not their area of expertise, so they're not going to be the ones to give you advice and follow up with you. And, and they're probably like, well, proof is in the pudding. Come back in three months. Exactly. And, you know, and then that's your chance. Yeah, exactly. So always feel free to <clears throat> like speak with your doctor yeah. and say, hey, I want to do things a different way. I don't want to take the medication. I'm going to make lifestyle changes instead. I'll work with a registered dietitian or a nutritionist. Make sure it's a good one. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, and, and most doctors will be open to that. Um, so anyway. <laughs> Statins are easily one of the most overprescribed medications, and it's done out of a standpoint of not really understanding what's going on in the body. So if you can get the NMR test done and can find out what percentage of your LDL particles are actually dangerous, then you can decide for yourself whether taking a statin is a good idea. Mm -hmm. And by the way, don't go on a low-fat diet. 
if you're healthy all the time. Oh, yeah, you're right. Don't That's do been it. like a sneaky, like my whole life I was like, oh, watch your fat. Yeah. But it's like, no, eat the healthy good fats. Eat and we have a podcast on what the good fats are. Yes, the truth about fats and oils. Listen to that podcast. Yes. And don't go on a low-fat diet. Go on a low to no sugar diet. It will yeah. lower your LDL. This I changed promise. my life. You've yep. helped me. Yep. We've talked, we talk about quite a bit about the connection between LDL cholesterol mm-hmm. and sugar in our sugar cereal episode. Yep. So you can go back and listen to those to understand, but high sugar intake causes high LDL levels. So reducing your sugar intake will drop those levels. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. promise. <laughs> yes, that's true. That is true. All right. The last couple of tests. So the one of the last ones I want to talk about is the uh, apolipoprotein B, ApoB. Um, that is a peptide found on the surface of lipoproteins like LDL cholesterol, mm. which carries more than 90% of the ApoB pro- particles in your body. So LDL is the biggest carrier of those um, apolipoproteins, which means that ApoB closely represents the number of LDL particles in your plasma. Uh, It can be a measure of the number of potentially dangerous, small, dense LDL cholesterol particles in the blood and can help predict the risk of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Mm. So if you haven't had your labs done recently, I would recommend that you make sure the tests that are in this podcast are included the next time you get your blood work done. There may be some like the fasting insulin that your doctor wouldn't naturally order, but you can ask for it and they can order it for you. And you might have to pay out of pocket, but most of them are pretty cheap. I think the fasting insulin is like 15 bucks. Mm. Like it's not terribly expensive. Yeah, for that knowledge. Let's do for that. the knowledge, it's worth it. The NMR, I'm not sure what that costs. But again, I, I would say like 50% of doctors I know will order it if their patient asks for it. The other 50% think it's snake oil (laughs) which is funny because it's quite scientific right and it's very well studied but that's fine yes we'll change them one podcast at a time yes that's right so routine lab work can help us understand the bigger picture of what's going on with our metabolic health Um, but it does have its limitations if we have a general understanding of our blood glucose and cholesterol markers what influences them and what our optimal ranges are to strive for, then we can become the master of our own health. Mm-hmm. So again, all of these numbers that I went through today, they're from a metabolic panel. It's not the comprehensive blood panel that we talked about, like a CBC. That's a whole different set of markers. Again, that's looking at your blood cells, the count, the size, the volume, all of that. It's a whole new podcast. That's a whole new mm-hmm. podcast. That's a whole separate episode. So this is from a metabolic panel. Um, but you'll, most doctors will order a comprehensive metabolic panel and a CBC for you. Mm, mm. And that will be covered by your insurance and is typically part of an annual physical or every five year, every 10 year physical. (laughs) (laughs) So what matters is personalization and figuring out what works best for you. And the nice thing is that those changes can be reflected fairly quickly in your numbers. So if you're making dietary changes, don't be afraid to order another round of blood work three months or six months down the road and see how those changes are taking effect. Yeah. Very smart. Yeah. I like it. So thank you, Drew Perot, for this handy guide that made it much easier for me to disseminate this information to our (laughs) podcast listeners because it's hard for me not to get lost in the weeds of like the nerdy science behind it. Yes. So this was very helpful to have kind of this overview, this written overview that was a lot more general than I would be able to make it to present that. And I'll see if I can 
copy his chart into the show notes, mm-hmm. although I'm not sure I'll be able to, but we'll find a way. We'll, we'll find a way. Um, well, thank you for all this information. Your brain is this like a brilliant, <laughs> brilliant, like pool of scientific knowledge and big words. And I, good golly, that's impressive. It's a lot of like rehearsing and I still don't always get it right. <laughs> so. Like, like there are some words you were saying in there and I was like, oh my word, if she asked me to repeat that word, I wouldn't even know how to say it. <laughs> Thankful I'm on this side. <laughs> awesome. Well, I hope that that's helpful for you. For our listeners, again, work with your doctor. I'm never suggesting that you don't work with your doctor. Don't ever make changes to your medications without talking to your doctor. Right, That can be dangerous. This is a general guide Mm -hmm. pulled together from various health experts in the functional medicine world. But it's important that you work with the health team that you have and keep them in the loop. That's the most important thing you can do. And, And don't hesitate to, if you're not... If your doctor is not being willing to work with you, go find another doctor, mm-hmm. right? But do it under medical supervision. Right, right. Of course. So, well, this is good knowledge. Thank you, Elaine. You're welcome. And for our listeners, go be renegades. Go be renegades. Thank you for listening to the Renegade Nutrition Podcast. Please keep in mind that this podcast is an educational service that provides general health information. The content on this podcast is not a substitute for direct, personal, professional medical care and diagnosis. You should always talk to your doctor before making a dietary or lifestyle change. Go be renegades! Go be renegades!